before we get started today, I'd like to take a moment to let our listeners know that we have launched our new Buy Me A Coffee memberships. Now, when you subscribe monthly for the price of one to five coffees, you also get exclusive benefits like special newsletters, behind-the-scenes content, the ability to ask us questions directly, as well as a special shout-out here on our podcasts. So head to Buy Me A Coffee and subscribe, and starting next week, you can hear your name on Explaining Brazil. If you cannot support us on a monthly basis, you can still tip us a coffee to give us the energy we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America. Head to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report to find out more. They say politics makes for strange bedfellows, and Brazil's 2022 election will certainly prove the old adage right. Former President Lula, the center-left icon who leads old pools, is reportedly all but certain to have former São Paulo governor Geraldo Alckmin as his running mate, a bona fide establishment conservative. E se der certo a gente construir essa aliança, eu tenho certeza que vai ser bom one could argue that the pairing is not that strange in terms of ideology and in terms of the way both men do politics. But Lula and Alckmin have already faced off against one another in a presidential election, exchanging pretty damning accusations and insults. Eu não tenho no meu governo ministro condenado. Não tenho indiciado pela polícia, não tenho assessor meu condenado. E a segurança pública de São Paulo, que você fala muito, terminou quando você deixou aparecendo o PCC. But in a push to win over centrist voters and vanquish Bolsonaro, Lula wants to give his presidential ticket some extra credentials with the markets. And for Augman, the alliance is a way to wield power even after being hung out to dry by his historical allies. Some believe the duo would be an electoral dream team. Others say it's a crisis waiting to happen. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Ewan Marshall, hello and welcome back to the show. Hi, Gustavo. So, Ivan, we're less than eight months away from Election Day, and we're beginning to have a solid body of polling data. The country is not in full election mode yet, but we have seen two-thirds of the electorate say they are already interested or very interested in the presidential race. So, what do the polls say? Well, for the past couple of months, the polls have been quite consistent in showing that the 2022 election is going to be probably a two-horse race. Uh, we've got former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva in the lead. He's polling in the low 40s for some time now. And President Jair Bolsonaro is behind him in the mid-20s. But much further back, you've got the centre-left former lawmaker Ciro Gomes and Sergio Moro, the former Operation Car Wash judge turned justice minister turned enemy of Bolsonaro. And both of them are polling in high single digits. And Ewan, we are the Brazilian Report have been saying for quite a while now that it remains too soon to draw many conclusions about how the election is going to unfold. 
But do any of the other competitors stand a chance against Bolsonaro and Lula? Well, I mean, it's it's Brazilian politics, so anything can happen in theory, but it's going to be really hard for anyone to kind of break with this dichotomy simply because Lula and Bolsonaro are just too popular and also too controversial because it's really hard to be indifferent to them. Um, for those who despise Lula, it's not enough for a candidate to be, you know, anyone but Lula. Their candidate has to be the anti-Lula. And then the same goes for Jair Bolsonaro. And, you know, in Brazilian politics, name recognition goes a long way into making a candidacy strong. Um, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find anyone in Brazil who didn't know who Lula or Bolsonaro was, but that's not necessarily the case for these other chasing candidates. And in Brazil, we usually publish two types of polls. We have the classic one where people get a list of candidates to choose from, and then another one when we ask uh, before that list is shown who someone is voting for without giving them any options. So this poll, we call them spontaneous polls, and they tend to be indicative of how many voters have already made up their minds, right? What are they saying? Well, yeah, it's, it's largely the same uh, with Lula and Bolsonaro miles ahead of the opposition. So, you know, Lula's been on an upwards trend ever since the Supreme Court quashed his corruption convictions in March 2021. Uh, but he's kind of parked himself in the mid-30s for these spontaneous polls. Bolsonaro, he's fluctuated a lot more, um, but he's always hovering around the mid-20s. Um, and then when you take all of the other candidates combined, you don't get more than 9%. And the thing is, no one has ever won the presidency in Brazil without having polled at least 10% in the 12 months leading up to election day. So if we follow that logic, that would mean only Lula or Bolsonaro would have a chance of winning. Now, Lula is ahead, but we expect things to get much tighter because rejection to Bolsonaro consistently went up since October 2020, which is when the coronavirus emergency aid salary was halved. And then we had millions of people who were temporarily lifted up from poverty by what was the biggest cash transfer scheme in Brazilian history. These people were thrown back below the poverty line. But his rejection rates have flattened since September of last year, right? I mean, they are higher than those of any other incumbent vying for re-election, but still... There is a silver lining there for the president because Bolsonaro's approval curves follow a very similar pattern to people's expectations about the economy. And this isn't exclusive to the current head of state. Uh, when people think the economy is doing better, the president, I mean, whoever they are, gets a bump in popularity. And then the opposite happens when economic pessimism sets in. Since Bolsonaro launched a new welfare program, the expectations curve has gone in his favor, hasn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, we've shown in the past how presidential popularity and economic optimism are linked. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll actually put some links to those stories in the in the show notes on Brazilian.report. And last year, Jair Bolsonaro, he got a huge win by managing to get something of a like a free pass to default on some IOU bonds that were set to be repaid in 2022. And that opened up a lot of space in the budget for Bolsonaro to repeal and replace Lola's Bolsa Família program with a cash transfer scheme of his own called Auxilio Brasil. Now, you know, while many experts in social policies have flagged up 
got many problems with this program, which, again, you can read about on our website. For now, it's worth focusing solely on the electoral impacts of this scheme. So Bolsonaro's plan at the moment is to hope that the economy is going to continue to recover, even if it's, you know, a slow recovery, because that would give him enough of a cushion to face Lola in a runoff vote. And then, when he's one-on-one with Lola, he would hope that anti-left sentiment would go on and do the rest for him. And, you know, let's remember that Bolsonaro's camp is investing heavily in ways to reach citizens online with pro-government content. And, you know, they've shown that they have the know-how to swing voters with a kind of fire hose of disinformation. So while Lola is enjoying a comfortable lead now, he's about to become the target. And, you know, he should expect a bit of a slugfest instead of a landslide. And what is Lula doing from his side to minimize Bolsonaro's chances of pulling off what would be a historical upset? So Lula's trying to get Brazilians to tap into memories of better times. Uh, because the last time he was president, Brazil was booming. The country was growing at unprecedented levels every year. Uh, poverty was going down. Full employment was a reality. And, you know, Lola passed many pieces of legislation to improve social inclusion and to boost social programs and to cater to poorer voters. Now, that combination of perfect conditions and good social policy making turned Lola into, you know, something of a like a political god. Um, because, as an example, when he left the presidency, he did so with approval rates of over 80%. But... Yeah, but then came the Dilma Rousseff years, um, which saw something of an economic debacle, a massive anti-corruption operation, a contested impeachment, and the growth of political polarization in Brazil. And anti-left sentiment became a strong political force in itself, and the markets began dreading the prospect of Lola being president again. Even though that he'd never done anything to hurt the interests of banks or big corporations during his eight years in office. And, you know, that fractured relationship between investors and Lola was certainly not helped by his own shift a bit more to the left. Opinion is split right now. I mean, some people see him as the ultimate pragmatist, while others see him as a threat. And what is Lula doing to improve his position and get, say, Wall Street cred? Well, he's he's doing something he did back in 2002 when he first won the presidency, and that is reaching across the aisle to find a running mate. And because back then he chose the conservative businessman José Alencar as his vice. He's a kind of low profile guy, really well respected and someone who never created problems for Lola. But now he, Lola is trying to pull an even bolder move uh, by luring former Sao Paulo governor Geraldo Alckmin onto his ticket. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to describe just how improbable this would have been as recent as four years ago. Uh, because Altman was a founding member of the Brazilian Social Democracy Party, the PSDB, PSDB, which along with Lola's Workers' Party was the biggest political group in the country for 20 years. So like, if you allow me to use like a football analogy, they were like Barcelona and Real Madrid, uh, Brazil and Argentina. So these two heavyweight parties that just seemed to despise one another. And Lola and Altman, they actually faced off in a presidential election in 2006, which the former ended up winning pretty comfortably. But during the campaign, of course, they traded some pretty severe accusations against one another. Um, but now it all seems to be water under the bridge and they're willing to kiss and make up, it seems. So it's like Messi's willing to wear uh, yellow and green or Neymar is uh, uh, willing to wear the Albi Celeste. <laughs> It's something like that, yeah. And is this alliance a done deal? Well, it seems so. Um, they've met a few times, once publicly, um, but we shouldn't expect an official announcement this month um, because in the meantime, Lola is looking to get as many parties on his side as possible. So when he finally does announce his candidacy, he wants to present this image of 
him being the leader of a united front against Bolsonaro. And Altman, he's left the PSDB last year and he's negotiating to join one of the centrist parties that actually have good relations with the Workers' Party. And many pundits say this is an electoral dream team. Yeah, I mean, it has the looks of it um, because Altman served as the Sao Paulo governor for many years and he enjoys, you know, huge, huge popularity here because if he were to run for governor again, he'd be the favourite. So Lola thinks that he could help the left in a conservative state which massively swung for Bolsonaro in 20. 2018. And moreover, you've got Altman who has great relations with conservatives in Congress. Um, in 2018, when he tried to go for the presidency for the second time, most of the so-called big centre was in his coalition. And now the, the big centre is a like a federation of conservative rentier parties in Congress, which they currently make up Bolsonaro's legislative support base. But they would be happy to jump ship if the power changed hands and if Altman was behind the new government. Right. And I mean, there is no such thing as a perfect ticket. So what are the weaknesses of the Lula-Alkmin alliance? Well, in one way, it kind of caters to Jair Bolsonaro's message that traditional politicians are all the same and that the party system is a big joke. Because, you know, if two guys can run against each other and call each other crooks, and then in the future they can shake hands and get onto the same ticket, you know, what's the point? So that's the message that Bolsonaro is trying to convey. Um, he's still claiming this kind of anti-establishment label, even after three years as president, and, you know, never mind decades as a Congress backbencher. And could this argument actually work? Well, not on its own, um, but it could help Bolsonaro draw closer to Lola, uh, making that runoff much closer than it looks now. And we have said this many times. Choosing a VP candidate is one of the most consequential decisions a presidential candidate can make because out of Brazil's 38 presidents, including Jair Bolsonaro, eight of them have taken the job after being elected vice president. I mean, for various reasons, death, resignation, and more recently, impeachment. So that's almost one in four. So by that token, wouldn't it be risky for Lula to have someone like Alckmin as his VP. Because, I mean, the guy has presidential aspirations. He ran for president twice, including that terrible effort for uh, three and a half years ago, in which he finished with less than 5% of the votes. So, as you said, he has good relations with the major forces in Congress. And then it's going to be hard for Lula to replicate the success of his first stint as president. And then it's going to be hard for Lula to replicate the success he had during his first stint as president, because the economy is tanking for a decade now. There is no commodity super cycle in sight. The pandemic has only deepened our structural problems such as coup evasion, the technological gap to other countries. So, I mean, let's say Lula wins and all the polls point to that. If he doesn't deliver results soon, he could lose a big chunk of his popularity. I mean, I, I don't know if voters would be as loyal to him as they seem now. And he, I mean, having a strong VP could turn up to haunt him. This isn't just my opinion. These are the fears of many of Lula's own allies. Well, that's it, yeah. Um, and it becomes even more significant when we consider that the presidency in Brazil has never really been weaker in the balance of power with Congress as it is now. Um, but as we said here before, a president in Brazil can only be impeached if they lose the economy, the people and Congress. And it's hard to imagine Lula facing the same popularity slump that Dilma Rousseff did. Um, she was a political rookie when she ran for president. Well, Lula, he's been, you know, the face of the left in Brazil since the 1980s. So, you know, I think it's 
quite unlikely that his popularity would ever really drop below the 30%-ish mark in Brazil. Because, I mean, if Bolsonaro, who has had a troubled presidency, if he's managed to conserve support from over 20% of the electorate and stay in office, you'd think that Lula would certainly be able to do the same. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. And after the break, we take a look at Lula's history with Congress. We'll be right back. We at The Brazilian Report have launched an in-depth report telling you everything you need to know to prepare yourself for this year in Brazil. You might already know that Brazil will elect a new president in October, and there are several other issues you should be aware of, such as the impacts of China's recent transformations on Brazil, the extreme climate events that will affect Brazilian agriculture, the state of congressional elections, and which way the economy is likely to go. You can purchase the report on our website and all of our listeners can enjoy a special 22% discount. Just use the promo code EXPLAINING22. We're back and joining us now is political scientist Carlos Pereira, a professor at think tank Fundação Getúlio Vargas. Professor, thanks for being on the show. It's, it's my pleasure, Gustavo. I'm glad to be here. The reason I reached out to you is because I read a quite interesting op-ed you wrote for a newspaper, o Estado de São Paulo, about how Lula's relations with Congress during his presidency can be compared to Bolsonaro's. And in your words... You say Bolsonaro's relationship with Congress has been a disaster, but you say Lula's relations with lawmakers were not that different. Why? Because in a multi-party presidential regime like Brazil, it's very difficult for the president to govern without coalition. So the government has to build a coalition. And Lula's coalition was a very big coalition and with too many parties and with very heterogeneous parties, parties that did not share the same and programmatic agenda. So in the Lula's coalition, we had left parties, right-wing parties, and center parties. So it's by far more difficult to coordinate a heterogeneous coalition and a large coalition as the Lula's coalition was. And on the top of that, Lula's prefer not to share power and neither resources with coalition partners taking into account their political weight in Congress. Quite the opposite, Lula decided to concentrate power and resources on his own parties and relegated a, a smaller amount of resources and powers to coalition allies. So this strategy generated lots of animosities and rivalities between allies because they tried all the time to to compensate the the choice of under reward their coalition partners in addition lula's coalition was a very center left coalition very distant from the preference the aggregated preference of congress i calculated the median coalition for all presidencies since the brazil had democratization starting with the Sarney's administration up to Temer's administration. 
And I found that the coalition that was very far away from what Congress wanted, Congress' preference, was exactly Lula's coalition. So he built not only a large, heterogeneous and disproportional coalition, but also a coalition that was very distant from the Congress' preference. Because of that, Lula's governance with Congress was not very peaceful, was very conflictual, and also generated lots of necessity for the government to create mechanisms of side payments in order to accommodate legislature's demands that have not been accommodated based on the original choice Lula's made with his coalitional partners. Now, uh, Professor, I mean, there were many quid pro quo deals between governments and Congress before and after Lula. Uh, we can cite the re-election uh, amendment uh, from 1997 that allowed Fernando Henrique Cardoso to run for a second term, that to, there were many allegations that congressmen were bribed. We have, for instance, now with Jair Bolsonaro, the secret budget, which are very uh, opaque budgetary grants that the government is giving to lawmakers in order to whip support. I mean, did the Workers' Party really deteriorate institutional relations between the presidency and Congress? Or did it do the same thing others did, but perhaps in a less sophisticated way? No, I think that it deteriorated. I think that the cost of governance is a function of presidential choice of how to build and sustain coalition. Okay, Those four choices, so the number of players and how close they are concerning their political platform and how the power and resources are divided and how distant the coalition is from and Congress preference, they have important consequences for the level of difficulties or facilities that the president will face in Congress. So if the president makes the right choice of building a concise and small and coalition with a small number of partners, and if they share similar preferences, if the president divide power and resources, taking into account the political weight, you know, let me give you a concrete example. President Henrique Cardoso, for instance, his party used to hold about 19 to 20% of seats in Congress. So the Cardoso's party has been allocated only about 20% of cabinet positions and also their legislators' amendments to the budget have been roughly 20% being appropriated. However, under the Lula's administration, 60% of the cabinet position has been allocated to PT members, despite the fact that PT only held 19% of seats in Congress. So his main political ally, which was the PMDB at that time, had about the same size of the PT in Congress and had only two cabinet positions, whereas the PT had 21. So this choice, this unequal choice of allocating power and resources generates lots of coordination problems among coalition allies lots of jealousy and animosity. And, and when the president faces 
such as a external shock, maybe an economic crisis or a corruption scandal crisis or whatever, those coalition allies take advantage of this fragility to try to, to balance these powers and to inflate the cost of supporting that particular government. That's what happened during the Lula's administration. I think that in a multi-party presidential setting like Brazil, is always a contentious of ongoing negotiation because those negotiations are not static. They are very dynamic in the sense that political players and economic actors, they update their beliefs based on contextual factors and as well as and potential crisis. If the inflation goes up and the presidential popularity decreases, so the president loses leverage to negotiate with coalitional partners. On the other hand, if and the inflation goes down and presidential popularity goes up, so the president has much more capacity to negotiate with coalitional allies in a much better condition. Professor, I'm sorry to, to barge no, in, but... No, no problem. Because you mentioned uh, uh, an interesting point about uh, how the balance of power operates between the president and Congress. And I mean, since the Dilma Rousseff impeachment, we have seen Congress taking up much more power than ever before. Do you think future presidents can put the genie back in the lamp? Or is that the new balance of power we are going to have to live with in Brazil? And if this uber powerful Congress is the new norm, what does that mean for the country and for governing in Brazil? Yeah, this is an excellent question, because This is one of the key features for the functionality of the multi-party presidential regime. So the president has to be the, a, the strongest player and in power. Dilma Rousseff, in order to survive in power, she gave up lots of, of powers, especially in, in, in budgetary policies. And as a consequence, the executive lost ground, lost powers to negotiate with Congress. But I do believe that if the new president would be able to build a cohesive and majoritarian coalition with a very clear programmatic agenda and divide the power and resources, take into account their political weight in Congress, it is possible that the president would genie inside of the bottle once again and regaining the power that once had They once lost under the, the Dilma Rousseff and also under the Temer's administration as well, and, and also Bolsonaro. So the, so the, the multi-party presidential regime becomes not functional when the president loses power. The president has to be a strong player with lots of resources under his or her discretion. Otherwise... It becomes quickly a hostile of Congress. Now, looking ahead to this year's elections specifically, if Lula were to sew up his alliance with Geraldo Alckmin as his running mate, would that be a step in the right direction in terms of building coalitions and a relationship with Congress and trying to not repeat the same mistakes that he did 20 years ago, as you explained quite well? It depends. We don't know yet who would come with Geraldo Alckmin. So far, it's only him, right? So no one from the PSDB has decided to leave the party and support Lula. Only him. 
So we don't know yet if this coalition represents a, a grand coalition with the center-right. Sometimes an electoral coalition does not necessarily can be translated in a governing coalition. So far, what Lula has is an electoral coalition with some parts of the PSDB, but it not necessarily means a governing coalition. This is a different task. This is a much difficult task than building an electoral coalition. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure, and I hope to talk to you again soon. That will be our pleasure. Thank you very much. And if you like Explaining Brazil, please drop us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes a second, and it will help more people find out about this show. Or you can sign up to The Brazilian Report the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We offer a seven-day free trial, no strings attached, which gives you access to the site for a week without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>